Well, please have a seat. And as you do, would you please join me in Matthew chapter 28? We're in a series of messages talking about why we're unified as a church. And so we've been talking about the fact that we have a shared love for Jesus. And we have a shared confidence in the scriptures. And now we're going to talk about how we have a shared commitment to the great commission. So as a church, we are united in a shared commitment to the great commission. We are united in this mission together. Now, a church can quickly move into disorder and disunity if they ever happen to lose the reason for their existence. Ken Blanchard, a business leadership guru, once wrote about his father and why his father quit the Navy at the rank of captain before becoming an admiral. So he asked him, Dad, why did you quit the Navy? And his father's response was this, Ken, I hate to say it, but I like the wartime Navy better than the peacetime Navy. Not that I like to fight, but in wartime, we knew what our purpose was and what we were trying to accomplish. The problem with the peacetime Navy is that nobody knows what we're supposed to be doing. And as a result, too many leaders think their full-time job is making other people feel unimportant. So a lack of clarity can descend an organization into dysfunction and disunity. So maybe you've heard these questions before. These have been around for a while, but do you see the church more like a cruise ship or a battleship? Oh, a cruise ship is very different than a battleship, isn't it? And a cruise ship is all about you when you're the person on it. You're just going along. It's your vacation. And you're going to judge the quality of the cruise by how well the staff of that ship treated you. Did, you. did you have a very contented, enjoyable time? That's not the picture of a church. We're more like a battleship where nobody's along for the ride. It's not a cruise. Everybody has a battle station. There's something we're to do. There's a cause bigger than any one of us that we're all rallying to. Somebody's improved that illustration. They said, well, how about this, that the church is more like an aircraft carrier, that we're launching ministry and missions out from ourselves. And it's a fine one. Then I came upon this one this week. Somebody said this and they asked this question. Do you see the church more like a clubhouse or a lighthouse? We'd say, oh, we are a lighthouse. We are a battleship. We're an aircraft carrier because we certainly have a mission. And so I have us here in Matthew 28 where Jesus is going to tell us very clearly until he comes again, what is the mission for the church? So Matthew 28, let's pick up, pick up together verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So what is the mission there in what we call the Great Commission? Here it is. The mission is to make disciples. He said, go and make disciples. So what is a disciple? Well, First of all, a disciple simply was what the first Christians were called. Remember, it was in Acts 11, we're told this, that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So you had the original 12 disciples, and then everybody who believed in the gospel, well, they're disciples, they're following Jesus. And it was in Antioch where the, the term Christian started to be applied to people like us. But disciples, the first name for us, 
And a disciple is a devoted follower. In our case, a devoted follower of Jesus. D.A. Carson defined disciple this way. Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus's teaching. So let's pause here. Let me ask the question. Does that term disciple fit you and the way you relate to Jesus? Does that describe you? Are you one who actually is following Jesus? You're hearing him. You're seeking to understand him that you might obey him. And Jesus tells disciples that their primary mission on the earth is this. Go make other disciples. Note this. Only a disciple can make disciples. You can't lead somebody else to follow Jesus if you're not following Jesus. And so to make disciples, you have to be first a disciple. And inherent in discipleship is that you are a disciple maker. Now consider with me, if these first disciples had heard this call to go and make disciples, and if they had said no, they would cease to be disciples. Because I'm not going to do the thing you said to do. Now I'm no longer following you. That term would not have fit them at all. Now see the command here. It's a command not to merely get decisions for Christ, but to make disciples of Christ. So our job is not done when we lead somebody and they pray to receive Christ. That's a glorious beginning when the person repents of sin and believes in Jesus. Wonderful. But we don't leave them there. Notice that's not what Jesus said. We go from there. We invest time and energy in that new believer that they might become a disciple. And now Jesus tells us how we do it. So the command is, Go make disciples. Now he tells us how. He tells us you're going to do it through baptism and teaching. Look at verse 19 again. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, there we have another Trinity sighting in the scripture. We have one God who eternally exists as three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here he has here he is described for us here and we are to baptize in the name of the father son and spirit so what is baptism well it's an important symbol and step of obedience so a person first believes in Jesus and then they are baptized now we understand this baptism does not contribute at all to your salvation nevertheless it is absolutely essential notice here Jesus commands it so you can't be a disciple of Jesus and refuse baptism. How are you going to go make disciples, which involves baptizing them, if you say, well, but I've never done that. So this is a basic early command that every believer who's trusted in Jesus, the free gift of eternal life, what do I do next? And this is a basic first step, can't be a disciple without it. So we know several things biblically about baptism. First of all, biblical baptism always follows faith in Jesus. There is no exception. You can search the Bible and you'll never find an example where somebody was baptized biblically and, and then became a Christian later. If that happens, they need to be baptized again. So specifically, notice with me, never in the Bible is there ever infant baptism. I say that with great kindness. I was sprinkled as a little Presbyterian baby. My parents meant well but it's just not ever in the Bible where that happened. It's always a believer personally made their decision for Christ and then follows with this symbolic act, this act of, act of commitment with public baptism. Secondly, in the Bible, when we talk about baptism, it's always by immersion. And that's what that word baptizo in the original language, it just means to dip under, to, to immerse. And that's why we baptize that way. 
Third, it's a beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what's being pictured when somebody's baptized. And simultaneously, it's a beautiful picture of what has happened in that believer. Their old life is dead and buried with Christ. And now they are raised up to walk in newness of life. That's what Romans 6, 4 talks about. So let me ask this. Do you need baptism? Maybe you put your faith in Jesus some time ago or maybe recently and you're wondering, what is my next step? Or, or I always wondered when I'd get around to baptism, this is the time to do that. It's a basic step of obedience. You can't omit it. It's not what saves you. Jesus alone saves you for, by what he did on the cross. But you must follow in baptism. See it with me in, in Matthew 28. And so tell us this week, I, I need to schedule baptism. And we would love to help you with it. It would be a great joy to do that. So we're commanded to make disciples. We're told how to do it. It's going to involve baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what comes next, we are to teach them. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all, notice that, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus here is indicating his understanding of the enduring value of everything he ever taught. You, you need to teach them everything that I commanded you. This is very different than how we did it in school. Remember in school, sometimes a teacher would be lecturing and then maybe one of your classmates would raise his or her hand and say, hey, is this gonna be on the test? Key question. If the teacher said, no, this isn't on the test, what did you do? And you sat back, you zoned out. I don't need this information. But there was never a time in Jesus's ministry where it's like, hey, this isn't gonna be on the test. This is just wasted information. I'm just filling time here. So notice Jesus said, you're, what are you going to teach these people who come to Christ? Everything that I commanded you. And notice this, Jesus expected it all to be obeyed. He says, these are things that I commanded you. And you're going to teach the new believers to observe, to obey everything that I commanded. So this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that you live to follow Jesus by obeying everything that he has said. So does that describe you? When you listen to messages, when you read the Bible your, yourself, do you come at that with the heart of a disciple? Like if I know that's Jesus, if I know that's the Bible, then I am inclined, I'm gonna obey that. Is that how you approach it? When, when you read the Bible yourself personally, are you reading with the goal, oh, I will respond to this in the power and help of the Holy Spirit? Are you seeking to obey everything that he commanded? And, and if that's so, here we come to this command, make disciples. Are you obedient to that? Is that a part of what you understand? Like, yep, I, I know that's what he's commanded. And my life now needs to be rearranged that I take up the great commission myself and take on this act of making disciples. And so individually that's us, but this is what we're committed to as a church. We love Jesus together. We're confident in the scriptures together and we're committed to this great commission together. And it shows up in everything we do as a church. You see it in our children's ministry. Why do we do children's ministry? It's not babysitting. It's this, it's this commandment, this great commission. And we want to invest in children. And we understand parents, you are the primary disciple makers of your children. Please don't shirk that responsibility. The world is gunning for your kids. This, is be, this will be the most dangerous time in history to be passive with the disciple making of your children and your students. Engage. 
But as a church, we rally around that. And so we have children's ministry, student ministry that we might help make disciples, teaching them the word of God, teaching them what it looks like to memorize scripture, showing them what it looks like to obey the Lord and share the good news with others. That's what these sermons are about. This is about discipleship, where we're exhorting each other from the word of God. Hey, let's follow Jesus. That's what, these are discipleship moments. But also in our life groups, this is a critical step for all of our members that I need to be in a life group where I'm with some other people, eyeball to eyeball, people who know my name and I know their name. And we're going to encourage each other to actually understand and follow Jesus together. That's what our grow group's about. We haven't really publicly talked a lot about those, but these grow groups are, are groups that have formed up kind of informally, maybe from within life groups or just a group of people saying, hey, let's get together, the four of us, maybe four guys or, or four women, and let's, let's read something together and let's spur each other on to, to read the Bible consistently and how to pray and how to share the gospel, memorize scripture, whatever, a little more accountability, the idea of accelerating discipleship there. And then, of course, all of our outreach ministries are about making Disciples. So understand making disciples in obedience to the Great Commission, it takes intentionality. It takes an investment of time and other people. So one of our concerns is coming out of the pandemic, and isn't it isn't it nice to see that perhaps we're coming out of it? There's a light at the end of the tunnel, and so it's beginning to get encouraging here. And and one of the concerns though that is who's gonna come back and serve with us after the pandemic or in the weeks, months ahead? Who's gonna come back? It's a bit of a concern. Because for many people, by necessity, you haven't been able to serve in many of the familiar ways. And so I hope you've looked at it like it's been a year sabbatical. Maybe some of our children's workers and student workers, you got a year to rejuvenate and refresh. But it's time, it's just about time to re-engage and to invest that time again in what God's called us to do. So be thinking about it, man, I've had a break. Enjoy a few more weeks, perhaps, whatever the time frame is going to be. But I'm ready. I understand the need and I need to have a place. It's, it's everybody to their battle stations coming soon because we are committed to making disciples. So our mission is not merely to raise up church members. Our mission is not church attendance. If we can just get people to show up for church, that's not the great commission. That's a nice beginning, but it is to make disciples. So we're told what to do make disciples. We're told how to do it. We're going to be baptizing people and we're going to be teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. And now we're told who and where we're to do it. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples, catch this, of all nations. So we're committed to do this right here in Richmond, but we're here and committed to do this at the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, same idea. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So as a church, we are unified because we are committed to the Great Commission to carry that out locally, regionally, globally, in our neighborhood, but also among the nations. Now catch the word go here. And we don't need an explanation of the word go. That's a word we know our whole lives. And we don't need to pull it up in the Greek. But if we do, we find things like this. To go means, it, it means this. It implies motion from the place where one is. To go away. To depart. 
familiar word because it's so familiar. Let's just ponder that a second. There is a going. So we can talk about it. It's a participle, all that stuff. But certainly if we're to take it to the nations, it requires leaving where we are and going to where the nations are. And aren't you glad the first disciples obeyed that command? We're here today, all these years later, in a different part of the world, worshiping Jesus because the first disciples were obedient with taking it to others, making disciples, and here we are. Now we also embrace a global mission as a church. Now a common question comes up anytime you talk about missions. And certainly if you're one that God calls to go as a missionary, you will face this question and we need to be able to answer it. Here's the question. Why go overseas when there are so many needs right here in America? That's a question. Got to have an answer for it. Why go overseas when there are so many needs right here in America? We first of all agree there are so many needs right here in America. That's why we're supporting the North American Mission Board. And that, that's why we're here, by the way, in America to reach our neighbors. But here's the issue. Overseas, there is a profound lack of access to the gospel. People around you have access to the gospel. You know how I know? Because they're around you. Where you work, you are their access to the gospel. Where you go to school, you are their access to the gospel. Every place you go, people have access to the gospel through you. But there are parts of the world where many people don't have access. They don't know a Christian. There aren't enough of them maybe in a large people group to be able to impact it. So the IMB tells us that there are 7,070, catch that number, 7,070 unreached people groups in the world. In those 70, in that 7,070, that's 4.5 billion people, we would say they're unreached. There are not enough believers in their massive people groups to, to impact them with the gospel. And yet we're told, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That word nations is the word ethne. And so we're not just thinking about geographical boundaries of a particular country on our map, but we do know this within each of those countries, there are nations within them. There are people groups within them. So just one example is Uzbekistan. So in Uzbekistan, we, we would find that on the map in Central Asia, but in Uzbekistan, there are Uzbeks, we would expect that, but there are also Tajiks, there are also ethnic Koreans there, there are Russians there, there are Jews there, there are gypsies there, and more. So yes, the map, somebody has to go there, and then, then there are people groups within there that need the gospel. How about India? <laughs> India is so diverse. Hundreds and hundreds of people groups just within India. In fact, in all of South Asia, they tell us that there are 863 unreached people groups just in South Asia. So you have people broken up into different groups. So you have people who are Hindus and they see themselves as separate from the Muslims who see themselves separately from the Sikhs and the Jains and the Buddhists and the tribal religions. You hear the diversity there. Missionaries have to go to these different people groups. Within Hinduism, there's the castes and that divides up the people. There are all kinds, hundreds of, hundreds of languages there, not just Hindi and English, all these languages. So these are different people groups and the gospel must go to all of these. This requires going. And when our missionaries go, they go with an incarnational approach. What does that mean? So when we talk about Jesus coming from the glories of heaven to earth, we call that the incarnation. Jesus took on flesh to dwell among us. Well, this is what missionaries do when they leave the, the familiar of the United States and they go to another country, they are going with an incarnational approach. It means I'm moving from where I live to where you are because you need Jesus. I'm going to learn your language. And what an investment of time and energy that is. 
Because you don't have to learn English to come to Jesus. They didn't, this didn't start in America. This started in the Middle East. We're glad it came here, but we're taking the same Jesus to you, and we want to bring it in your language. A missionary is incarnational. They're also wanting to adapt to the cultural, the cultural norms of where they are. And so our missionaries go with a disciple-making goal to make reproducing disciples in the midst of reproducing churches. So as a church, we're just saying we're committed to Jesus's great commission. And it shows up in a lot of ways. And, and you're aware of that. You see that here, that we give sacrificially to missions. So as Southern Baptists, we get to support 3,700 at this time, missionaries serving around the world, plus thousands of others who are here serving in North America, doing church planting in places like Seattle and Portland and Chicago and New York. Aren't you glad there's light being spread in those places? And so we support them. Listen to this, since 2006, just through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions, since 2006, you have given here through Staples Mill $1.4 million to missions. That's, that's beyond your everyday regular giving, special gifts you've given $1.4 million since 2006. Not only that though, through your everyday regular offerings, 10.5% we give away into great commission causes. The bulk of that goes to the cooperative program. So every year, you're giving out of your normal gifts over $100,000 a year to the cooperative program, which supports these same 3,700 missionaries, North American board, church planners, also theological education, which is also a part of our disciple making. And then right now we are in this season of giving and prayer for the North American mission offering. Again, that $40,000 by God's grace we'll be able to give. So, so we give into this because we're committed together to the great commission, but we send from our own congregation. And if I counted right through the years, from Staples Mill, we have sent 11 families or singles to, to overseas missions. I'm not talking about mission trips for a week or two, but we're talking about those who've served two years or longer. We've sent 11, either a single person or, or families with IMB calls units. We've sent them and, and you know them. We have seven families out right now. So we think about the cells. We think about the Sneeds. We think about the Mackies. We think about Wes, Chris, Jonathan, and Carolee, Scout. Dale and Bonnie just recently came back to care for her family, but we, we know these people and here's the deal. We want to send more, don't we? We want to send more. It's one of my prayers that another wave and wave after wave of people say, I sense God's call and I want to prepare myself to launch out to them. Listen, not only do we give and send, but we, I love this because we love the missionaries from our church. We did purchase and set up the Mazelle house, this home for folks to come back for a few months as they kind of refresh after a time on the field, as they get ready to go back. We're grateful to do that. So we're committed to this. But I want to spend the, the rest of our time now responding to that individually and as a church. And I want to ask this question as we just respond to this. Is God calling you to missions? Of course, he's calling all of us to it in these ways of praying and giving and going and sending. We're all a part of that. But is God calling you to go as a missionary? And that question, I understand, is quite unnerving. Who, me, do that? Can you imagine these first disciples when Jesus tells them they're about 120 in number? Hey, I want you guys to go make disciples of all the nations. First century, no internet, no airplanes. <laughs> you go reach the world. They had to have felt inadequate. And so if you feel inadequate for this calling, join the club. We're all inadequate. We're all inadequate. We need the Lord for this. And that's why the Lord gives us two important words of assurance here, right here, sandwiching 
this great commission. He starts with this. He talks about his authority. Notice verse 18 again. This is how he begins the great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let those words sink in. There's no greater authority than the authority of Jesus. He says it. All authority in heaven on, and on earth has been given to me. That glory he had, that authority before he left heaven in the incarnation, that's now back to him and he has it. So there's a couple of implications from that. First of all, since he has all authority in heaven and on earth, he has the authority as your savior and Lord to tell you, I want you to go to another place to reach people for me. You know, who has the authority to tell me where to relocate? He does. All authority in heaven and on earth. Secondly, when God calls you to go to a place, you think, man, I'm just little old me. I mean, who am I to go into a country, even a country that doesn't allow missionaries? How am I supposed to go in? You go with the authority of Jesus. All authority is his. You'll go in humbly. You'll go in carefully, but you'll go in boldly because he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's the one calling you. But I love it. He ends the Great Commission with another word of assurance, his authority first, now his presence. Look at this at the very end. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So when he calls you, he doesn't just send you out there. He goes with you. You go in his power and that will lead to confidence, even though you feel very inadequate. I've been reading in these days, Adoniram Judson's biography to the golden shore, about halfway through it, loving it. And I'm so inspired by so many things I'm reading about him. He was the first American missionary to, to go out. And, uh, and he, he actually became a Baptist while he was on the ship heading over to do this work. He became convinced about baptism like we were just talking about. But, but so impressive, his confidence. Listen to this. Now, I've just picked one excerpt from the book to read you. Because this is how he asked for his wife's hand in marriage. And so his wife, the one, woman he wanted to marry is named Nancy. She's quite young. This is in the early 1800s. And here's how he asked for his wife's hand in marriage. He says to the father, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. He was called to missions and he wanted to take Nancy with him. He continues, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Quite a letter. There's a guy who knew, I've been called to do this by the authority of Jesus and he's going to go with me and I'd really like Nancy to come with me as my bride. And guess what? The father of Nancy said, yes. He showed great faith himself. We go in his power. Again, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in all these places. So his presence, his authority is the answer to our fear and our sense of inadequacy. And missionaries do have fear. 
and they overcome it in these things. So maybe right now, as we just consider, is the Lord calling me? As you're considering, is the Lord calling me? You might not even want to ask him because of fear. I'm afraid if I ask him, he may say yes. Maybe your, maybe your fear is more practical. I'm afraid of snakes. That might be it. Because you've heard missionaries and snakes. I'm afraid of snakes. Can, can I remind you? Yes, there are snakes overseas in some places. But there are snakes here. I'd be scared to go to some of your backyards. Because you've told me you have copperheads every year in your backyard. I'm imagining somebody in Africa right now, somebody in Asia right now going, I don't think I want to go to Glen Allen. I hear they have poisonous serpents in their backyards. And so we, do, we can make it work here. You can make it work over there. Or maybe it's crime. You know, it's unstable over there, and I'm scared about crime. We have crime. This was a funny moment when we were serving in Central Asia. One of my students, I was teaching him English, and he got permission to immigrate to America. The dream of everybody. I get to go to America. And he told me, I'm getting to go to Greensboro, North Carolina. And I said, oh, I'm from North Carolina. But then he, he pulled me aside. He said, but I'm scared. I'm scared of crime. They watch our movies over there and all the crimes and the gunfights and all that. And, maybe, and nowadays they see our news as well. And so I just assured him, it's just like here. There, there are good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods. Just when you get there, ask people, should I go to this part of town this time of day? But we can have things that will scare us from going. I remember one scary night. I could, I could spend the day telling you scary moments for us and uh, overseas. But how about this one example? Um, Joy wakes me up in the middle of the night, our first year overseas. And she says, Jim... Wake up. I think I just killed a scorpion. It was a beautiful statement and a scary statement. First of all, the beautiful part is I think I just killed a scorpion. She did not say, Jim, get up and kill the scorpion. I'm from North Carolina. Never seen one before. I don't know their moves. Does a scorpion jump at you? I mean, they're hideous looking things. I don't know how to kill a scorpion, but Joy killed one <laughs> and told me about it, but go check it out. So I then go, and sure enough, she had killed an actual scorpion there in our bathroom. And our landlord told us later, he said, yeah, they're poisonous. And he had been hospitalized as a child, uh, being stung by one on that very property. Well, listen, because we had a scorpion in the house, I thought, I, I was afraid. I thought I had not counted the cost of scorpions, poisonous scorpions in the house. And nobody told me there would be scorpions here. And I'm, I was concerned about that. And I started all the what ifs. What if Joy had stepped on it? This is a land with no good medical care. What if Hillary, our young child at the time, what if Hillary had stepped on it and there's just no good doctor, hospital, you know? And so I, I wasn't going to quit over it, but it was, it was, it rocked me that this, this, what could have happened. But here's the blessing. We didn't tell family yet, but Joy's sister up in Northern Virginia sends us an email. She said, you'll never guess what happened this weekend. She said, we had a snake in the bathroom flooding in the area, four snakes. We had a snake in our bathroom. And that was such a blessing to me because I thought, where am I going to run? I'm going to run from a scorpion. There could be a snake in my bathroom here. The, the other part of the story is we never saw another scorpion. Our teammates never saw a scorpion. My students that I taught there, they'd never seen a scorpion in their house. They're like, where do you live? They asked me. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't run from there. It was just kind of a fluke thing that God allowed. But, but listen, there are fears but let's not let fear determine whether or not we're obedient to the Lord. Consider his authority, all authority in heaven on earth. And when he calls, we say yes. And the promise that he'll be with us. And can I remind you this? We won't be actually physically be with you the whole time, but we're with you. Here we're talking about missions. This is not uncommon for us. We, we think of, pray for the missionaries from our church all the time. Every day in my life, 
in my office. There are pictures around on the table. That Thursday night prayer team faithfully prays. You won't be going alone. You'll have a church family committed to the Great Commission going with you. So whether God calls you to a distant jungle or to a mega city, trust him and go make disciples. And by the way, it's not all jungles and snake infested areas. God could call you to a mega city, increasingly so. Cities like Taipei, Singapore, Bangkok, Jakarta, Calcutta, Mumbai, Bangalore, places like Tashkent and Dushanbe, Karachi, places like Tokyo and Kabul and Krakow and Lima and Beirut and Baghdad. There are cities all over the world where you could go to make disciples going in his authority. And so let me end with this. Why are you here? Have you asked God, do you want me here? Or do you want me to go somewhere else with the gospel? Because it is your command and I'm to observe everything that you have commanded. So why are you here? Are you sure this is where God wants you? Joy and I had to test this again just within the last two weeks because we got an email from the folks serving in South Asia telling us uh, something I mentioned. Now, here's the answer to this. God called us to stay right here. So just the end of the story is not, and I'm announcing, no, there's nothing to announce. Uh, right here, committed to the Great Commission to continue sending and equipping people to do this. But, but we had to ask the Lord anew because here's the email I got. And it didn't just come to us, but others who had also served in South Asia. But listen to this. This was a sobering moment when I read this. We need more missionaries to join us in the task of South Asia. With your previous experience in South Asia, you are already fitted for this task. Would you consider returning to the field? That was a whoa moment. I mean, I prayed about it before. You always, you're always on, you're willing to do whatever God wants. But this is the first time in 15 years since leaving the IMB that here's a direct ask. Would you consider returning to the field? You, would you at the very least pray and consider this opportunity? Then they continue. We are ready to talk with you about what this could look like. If now is not the time, would you be an advocate for the people of South Asia? Would you meet with a family from your church, a student or a professional who may be interested in sharing the good news around the world and ask those potential future missionaries to join us in South Asia? So God affirmed right here, but I'm doing the second part of that right now. We're not doing it over coffee, but let's do that too. But I'm letting you know there's needs all over the world, but our brothers and sisters serving in South Asia, they, they have a crying need for more workers in that part of the world among 1.8 billion people. And so offer yourself to God wherever he wants to use you. But, but here or there, we must make disciples. And so let's pledge again to each other and to the Lord that we will remain unified in our shared love for Jesus, our shared confidence in the scriptures, and our shared commitment to this great commission, let's tell him, Lord, we will be rooted in your truth and we will reach in love until you come again. Let's pray together.